Right. Good evening. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, book of Jonah, and we'll continue <clears throat> our exposition of this book. Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for this particular book, and more importantly, for the way you worked through the prophet Jonah in that time in history, amongst your people and the people of Nineveh. And Lord, as we look at this passage, please help us to understand what happened and the implications and the applications for us, the lessons that we can learn from it and apply to our own lives and to understand a bit better about what was happening in the life of Jonah and the life of your people in Israel. And Lord, I pray that you would work through me, that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth in power and clarity and precision and would impact the hearts of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now we... um, began our study of the book of Jonah a couple weeks ago, and in that first message, we, I did an overview of the book and, and saw that um, as we were looking at the book and, and all of it, um, we saw that Jonah is first and foremost a, a book about a disobedient prophet, uh, but it's also a book about sinners, about uh, Jonah as a disobedient prophet, and um, the sinful people of Nineveh that he goes to, and and, um, by way of implication and application, it's a book about us and our own disobedience. Um, However, it's ultimately a book about God and his character, his providence, and how he works through um, time and history and his people and events and circumstances and nations, and uh, his power to save sinners and even to use sinners to do that. And uh, last week we looked at Jonah's calling from God and gained a better understanding of Jonah as a prophet in his times as we looked a bit more closely at the office and calling of the prophets, his own ministry, and the wider cultural and political context of the nation of Israel in Jonah's time that Jonah didn't just drop out of space, but he was born and raised and ministered in a time and place, and, and there was events and circumstances in that time and place in Israel's history, and, 
and the nations around them. Uh, well, tonight we're going to take a look at Jonah's initial response to God's calling as he flees in the exact opposite direction that God told him to go. But not only that, there's an interesting detail throughout the book of Jonah, and that is this, that <clears throat> as you look at Jonah and the um, narrative throughout this book, um, we see that everything throughout this book responds positively towards God except Jonah. We see as Jonah disobeys God and God hurls a great wind upon the sea, the, the winds in the sea obey God. The sailors uh, respond positively towards God's discipline. They, they, they repent. They offer vows to God. The, even the lots that they cast um, work in God's favor to point out Jonah. And his disobedience. Um, the, the fish, the fish obeys God. Um, the Ninevites obey God and they repent. The, the plant obeys God and it, it springs up. Um, the worm that God sends to eat the plant obeys God. And, and then the scorching east wind that comes up upon Jonah at the end to um, make him hot and... and uh, and actually miserable, that obeys God. Everything obeys God throughout the whole book of Jonah, except Jonah, um, initially. He does, when he repents, he does obey God. <clears throat> but in, in this verse here, this initial verse of his disobedience um, to God's call in verse 3, this verse details Jonah's initial disobedience and his initial response to God's calling, but within this verse, there's a key which unlocks the greater picture and meaning of the book of Jonah. And Jonah himself, he was a prophet who lost sight of his purpose as a prophet. And he was really a reflection of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel who had lost sight of their purpose. And we see this not merely in the fact that Jonah disobeyed God's call, but that as this verse says, instead of rising up to go to Nineveh, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then we read, and it says, he went down to Joppa, and then down into the ship, and then later on went down into the inner part of the ship, and then laid down and was fast asleep. You see, Jonah was, as he disobeyed God, he was going down further and further spiritually as he was going down physically. It was an indication of what was happening in his heart so that he could fall fast asleep in the midst of a storm. As he disobeyed God's call, he was descending further and further. But more importantly, this, this began as he fled from the presence of the Lord, which this verse says twice. It, it, it begins by saying, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and then it, it repeats it again at the end, to go with them, 
the sailors to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And, and that is the key to this verse and the whole book of Jonah. That he was leaving the presence of the Lord. And <clears throat> there's something that we, got, we have to consider. Because in, in Psalm 139, and as most of you know, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that we can go um, where God is not. And in Psalm 139, which details the <clears throat> characters and the attributes of God, um, we read Psalm 139, verses 7, as David writes this psalm and, and he talks about God, and he says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. <clears throat> and so this psalm being written by David and, and Jonah coming after David, and, and, and more than that, um, Jonah being a prophet of God, he knew this. He knew good and well that he could not escape God's presence. But there is a sense in which he fled from God's presence. And so, as we look through Scripture, there, there's two different aspects of God's presence. There's the fact that He is spirit, and He is omnipresent, and He is everywhere. And he, even Revelation 14 says that those who are in hell are being tormented in the presence of the Lord. That there's nowhere we can go apart from His presence, but... There's many scriptures that talk about those fleeing from the presence of God. And it starts in Genesis. It starts back, way back in the fall. And, and you can turn there and look in Genesis chapter 3, and we see this, this aspect of fleeing from the Lord's presence. In Genesis chapter 3, um, right after the fall, verses 6 to 8, <clears throat> it says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God was everywhere, as he is today, but they sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And that's, that's interesting because it's an interesting aspect of the fall and of sin and guilt and shame that we seek to hide ourselves from the presence of God. And we can see this in the next chapter with Cain and Abel. 
chapter 4, verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone, any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so we see here, right after the fall, and and later on we will see it throughout the life of Israel and even in the New Testament, that there's two aspects of the presence of God. There's the aspect that He is spirit and He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But there's also this special presence of the Lord where He dwells in the midst of His people, where His people gathered, where where His people are, where He, um, in a sense, condescends towards His people, where they worship. And and this was what Eden was supposed to be. In a sense, a, a temple, a place of worship where Adam and Eve communed with God and they walked with God until they sinned. And when they sinned and they saw who they were and they felt their guilt and their shame, immediately they tried to hide themselves from God. And this is, this is interesting because we, we can see this in children. You can see it in children. When they do something bad, what, what's the first thing they do? They try to hide. They look around. You see it in criminals. What do they do? When they're trying to do some act of crime, some evil deed, first thing they do is look around, see if anybody's looking. They try to do it under the cover of darkness. They try to hide. Um, When someone feels guilty, the first thing they do is try to hide themselves. And first and foremost from those around them, but really there's a deeper spiritual thing going on that they're trying to hide themselves from that conviction and ultimately from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. And throughout Israel's history, throughout the history of the church, um, even today, um, if we see anybody that within church or or names the name of Christ or is in a Christian family, um, when they backslide, when they um, fall into sin, the first thing they do is they stop... um, stop attending, they stop gathering around the people of God, they, they get away from where God dwells. They flee. They flee from wherever God would be. They stop reading their Bible. They stop praying. They stop fellowshipping. And this happened in Israel's history. It happens in the history of the church. That we flee from those places where God is most present, where God is worshipped, where the reminders of God are in His Word. 
And this is what Jonah is doing. It's interesting, in um, the MacArthur Study Bible, there's a note, and um, it writes in the introduction that uh, Jonah is a picture of Israel who was chosen and commissioned by God to be his witness, who rebelled against his will, but who has been miraculously preserved by God through centuries of exile and dispersion to finally preach his truth. See, God was always, his intention was always to dwell with his people, to have a special people, a special possession um, where his name would be exalted, where his name would be held high, where his name would be worshipped. But as people sinned, they, they tried to flee from that place and those places. And they rebelled against his will. And this is what Jonah is doing. Just as Israel did. He's fleeing from the presence of God. And we see this more in the purpose. The purpose of Jonah and the purpose of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah lists um, what Israel was supposed to be. He calls out, he, he, he in a sense convicts Israel and reminds them of who God made them to be. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10, and following, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And Isaiah, he was ministering about the same time as Jonah except south in Judah. And a lot of the same things were happening in Judah that were happening uh, north in Israel. The people were engaged in idolatry and sinfulness, and, and they were, in a sense, rejecting God. They weren't, they weren't acting how they were supposed to act. They weren't being the people they were meant to be. They weren't being God's witnesses. And this goes all the way back to the purpose for which God called his people, the, the reason why he led them out of Egypt, the reason why he set them apart in Palestine. And it goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is giving the people the law, the, the second reading of the law, near Mount Nebo on the plains of Moab, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, is in a sense the charter of Israel. And you can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verses 5 to 8. <clears throat> As Moses is recounting the law a second time, before the people enter into the, the land, before they cross the Jordan, he says to them, chapter 4, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land 
that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, as Isaiah recounts to Israel, they were to be a witness nation. They were to go forth into the land which God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to take possession of that land. They were to follow God's law as Moses had clearly written to them. And in following that law and obeying it to the letter, they would be a wise and understanding people. They would be a great people. They would be a people like no other. They would stand out from the midst of all the nations around them and, and the nations around them would see them and say, what great people is this and what great God is theirs? And they would flock to the nation of Israel and they would worship God because they would see that God truly dwelt amongst them. That there was something special about this people. That they were different that they were holy, that they were pure, that they were moral, that they were upright, that they were wise, and that the presence of the Lord was with them. They were to be a witness to the nations, but they rebelled. They rebelled, in a sense like Jonah rebelled. And later on in Deuteronomy in chapter 12, Moses writes, <clears throat> chapter 12, verses 10 to 11, he says, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. He said, the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Israel was set apart by God. They, they were to be God's people, and his name was to dwell amongst them. That, that's why um, there is a commandment, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. That doesn't mean that you use it as a cuss word. That's true. That's more along the lines of blasphemy. But taking the name of the Lord your God in vain means that you're treating it vainly. 
as if it's nothing. You're, you're treating it lightly. It, it, it's not a weighty matter. It doesn't mean much to you. It's vain. It's empty. It, it, it's just as any other thing. It's like your, maybe like your first name or your nickname. It, it, it's, no, it's you are God's people. You are called by God. You have his name. And so taking his name in vain means that you don't care how you live. And, and in a sense, you're, you're dragging his name through the dirt in your wrong living, in your sinful living, in your idolatrous living, in your rebellious living that his reputation, because you are named by him as his people, his reputation is linked with you. And so that's what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is that you're treating it lightly to be called by him, to be his people. And this is what they did. And this is, in a sense, what Jonah does in his disobedience, as he flees from the presence of God. And in responding disobediently to God's calling, Jonah, he not only flees from God's presence, but in fleeing from his presence, he, he forsook three privileges, which God offers to all his people as divine benefits of obedience to him. There's three benefits, there are three privileges of God's people. And first and foremost is the presence of God. This is one of the privileges of being God's people is that he would make his name dwell amongst us. He would be with us and he would condescend towards us. He would make his name known amongst us, amongst the people of Israel. The presence of God is is manifested really in, in, in three different ways. First and foremost, in his favor. That his favor would be upon those who are obedient to him. Those who are called by his name. The favor of God would be upon Israel if they obeyed. And it, it was. It was upon them in certain times in history. Um, the golden age of Israel was... Um, right after Solomon's reign, when, when silver and gold was like stones, and they're prosperous, and, and they're obeying him and following him, but it, it was short-lived. There, there's also times in, in, in David's life, but it was short-lived. Isaiah writes in the beginning of his, um, his prophecy, <clears throat> And it says in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 to 9, For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to, him, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And look what he says. He says, they were defying his glorious presence by their sin, through their disobedience. 
So why did Jonah flee from the presence of the Lord? Because he, he, he didn't want to carry out his commands. He didn't want to carry out his calling. And so he fled because his conscience pricked him. And he didn't want to be reminded of that calling, of that purpose, of, of what he was supposed to do as a prophet. And, and even more so, of what Israel was supposed to be as a witness nation. And, and that's... That's an implication to us. When we seek to flee from the presence of the Lord, when we flee from the presence of God's people, when we flee from His Word, when we flee from prayer, when we flee from those spiritual disciplines because we're in sin. That the, the, the two can't go together. That we're either being obedient and faithful and we're with God and God is with us or we're in sin and, and we flee from those reminders of God amongst His people. And, and the, the presence of God is, is manifested in His favor as we're obedient. It's also manifested in His worship. Uh, the worship of Israel was um, such that they were to come into the presence of the Lord at the temple. At the, when they built the tabernacle, it, God said that his, his name would dwell there, that His presence would be there as a manifestation. And yes, He is everywhere, but it was, it was a physical manifestation to them that this is a place where we worship the Lord. This signifies us being set apart unto the Lord. And there's some psalms that, that um, signify this. Psalm 95 says, says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Psalm 100 says in verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Psalm 105, verse 4 says, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. And so there is a sense that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There's no place that we can go where He is not. But there is also a sense that we come into His presence when we gather and when we worship. And, and not just our corporate gathering, though that is primarily where we come into His presence, but in those times in our personal devotions, in those times in our prayer closets, in those times where we set aside to read His Word, to pray to Him, to seek Him, we are coming into His presence. And conversely, when we are in sin, we tend to shrink back from His presence. We don't worship Him. This is what Jonah is doing. Jesus even said in John 14, 23, he said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says later in, in John chapter 15, Abide in me. For, uh, you know, the, the branches, you abide in the vine. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
We are to abide in Him. We are to come into His presence. We are to live in His presence, so to speak, as an act of worship, as we live our lives in a worshipful manner. We come into His presence. We live in His presence. Psalm 16, David says at the end of Psalm 16, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And David is, in a sense, speaking in, in, in two ways. That, um, as David said in Psalm 24, that, that he would long to be in the Lord's presence, to be in his temple. So he, he, he's talking about um, the physical aspect of worshiping the Lord, but more importantly, he's talking about the heavenly spiritual aspect of, of where God really is in heaven, that there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the presence of God is manifested in his favor towards his people as they're obedient. It's manifested in his worship as we worship rightly and, and we confess our sins and we come to him with pure hearts and we worship him. He, he manifests his presence here in our gatherings but he also manifests his presence um, as his possession, as his, his people. We are his people and his possession. And this was to be the nation of Israel, were to be his special possession, his special people. And, and even the prophets of God were to be his spokesperson, his, his, his mouthpiece. The church of God as well in the New Testament, we are his people. And even more so because His Spirit indwells within us. And this is, this is where we um, get this concept of separation. That as God calls His people out of the world, we are to be, in a sense, separate from the world, but we are still to be witnesses to the world. We are to be separate from sin and sinful relationships and sinful associations. And, and if we are separate, separated and we are set apart and holy, He dwells within us and His presence is manifested within us and, and around us. And the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this concept of, of separation. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> As Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And there is a sense that as we are called out from the world, and as Israel was called out from the world, as God's special people, as, as his nation, and they were set apart, 
They were to be holy unto the Lord, and as they are to be holy unto the Lord, they were to shine as lights in the midst of a dark and decaying world, and they were to attract those who would repent and believe and seek God while He may be found. And we are to do the same, and, and as we're separate and as we're holy, that God dwells amongst us. He manifests Himself within us. And He condescends toward us, and He walks amongst us. And so we're to be holy. Even David, in Psalm 51, his, his psalm of repentance, he says in, in verses 11 to 13, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Don't cast me out into the world. Don't leave me. Yes, I've sinned, but I'm repenting and turning to you. I I, I seek your presence. And and this is is what happens when, when people, when believers and Jonah sins and disobeys God. The first inclination is to hide from the presence of the Lord. But, conversely, when a believer repents, and we see this as Jonah repents, his first inclination is to return to the presence of the Lord. And in Jonah, Jonah's repentance in chapter 2, he, he says this in verse 4, he says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. There is a sense that, that he fled from God, but he says, I am driven away from your sight. And it was because of his disobedience, because of his sin, he fled, but was, in a sense, driven away as well. Yet he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He wanted to return from the present, return to the presence of God. And so God offers his presence to those who are obedient to him. But he also offers his protection, the protection of God. So we have the, the presence of God, first and foremost, as a benefit to those who obey him. And second, we have the protection of God. Protection from enemies. Israel, as they obey God, there was this this promise that that God would protect them from all their enemies. So long as they obeyed him, as they followed him, as they walked in his ways, as they listened to his law, as they, they worshiped him purely, he would defend them. He would provide for them in every way. He would um, protect them from any enemy. This is one of his promises in in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can turn back there and see this. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 7. And Moses writing at this time. This is part of the blessings and the curses. 
Um, he, he writes, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all the, these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. But did this happen in the history of Israel? It was only a few times. There's only a few instances. It was only as Israel obeyed God, only as they walked with God, did he protect them. And as they disobeyed, as they, they refused to follow his law, he removed that protection. And there is a sense that as Jonah flees from the presence of God, he's forsaking the protection of God. And God sends his discipline upon him. He disciplines a disobedient prophet through the winds and the, the sea and the fish and even the, the mariners who throw him overboard. And... God also offers protection to us as we walk with him. doesn't mean that we won't be persecuted, but he offers a certain level of protection to us as we obey him. So this protection of God, it's manifested in protection from our enemies, but it's also manifested in protection from fear. Isaiah writes in, in, in chapter 26, verse 3, it says, um, he who keeps his mind stayed upon the Lord, we'll have perfect peace. We will have that perfect peace. And, and that's, that's how we are to be. When we're, when we're obedient and we're following God and we're worshiping God and we're, we're following his commands, then there will be an absence of fear from our enemies an absence of fear from man and, and from troubles and trials and things around us that could harm us. Israel was fearful of the nations around them, of the empires that were rising up, of those who were stronger than them. Every, every time um, someone would raise up economically or politically, or um, they would fear. And, and they, they would... They would, their first inclination, more often than not, would be to do what the nations did, to ask for a king, to, to, to try to uh, multiply their horses and chariots and their armies rather than seek God who would provide all those things. Once again, in, in Deuteronomy 28, <clears throat> verses 9 to 10, it says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. As he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. If they walked in his ways and obeyed his law, 
They would not fear the peoples around them, but the peoples around them would fear them. And this is similar in our days, in our day as the church. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Turn there and, and read along with me in Matthew chapter 10. Because we all struggle in various ways with fear and fear of man. And uh, uh, Pete talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It, it, this is within all of us that we fear man because, in a sense, we want, we want to be liked. We want to be affirmed. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 to 33, Jesus writes, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And this, this is very much characteristic of what was going on in Jonah's life. He was to be a witness. This is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples, that, that we are to be a witness for him. We are to proclaim his gospel. We are, we are to go forth and make disciples, and yet as they persecuted Jesus, they will in a sense persecute us. If we are faithful to proclaim his name, then there will be some opposition. But he says, have no fear of them. Even if there's persecution, even if there's opposition, if, even if they're hostile. This is, this is what Jonah was afraid of. Because he was not walking with God, he was not walking obediently, he was not trusting in God, he was fearful of the Assyrians and of, of the Ninevites, of what they would do to him. And his fears, in a sense, were legitimate. Just as, as Jesus talks about those fears, those are legitimate fears, because those are a reality. And, and it, it's quite possible that the Assyrians and the Ninevites could have turned on Jonah and could have killed him. They could have made a mockery of him. They could have tortured him. They could have made an example of him to all the other Hebrews and anyone who would come and preach another god besides their false gods. Surely there was legitimate fears in Jonah's mind concerning the Ninevites. But if his mind was stayed upon the Lord, if he was faithful, if he trusted in God, then those fears would have subsided and he would have gone forth in boldness and proclaimed 
repentance to the Ninevites, as he would later. He would later do that, but this should have been his initial response. God will give us protection if we're obedient. He will protect us from our enemies. He will protect us from fear. And we'll even be protected from discipline, from his own discipline, if we're obedient. This is what this is what God would do to Israel. He would discipline Israel as he was doing in, in the time of Jonah and even before that and later on as he exiled them, as he brought the Assyrians um, upon them to take them off into exile and later the Babylonians. And this is where Jonah is in a sense a picture of Israel because he, he's called to go and be a witness for God, but he says... No, I'm not going to go. He flees from the presence of God. He flees from where God's name is named and called. And, and then he, he goes in the opposite direction. God disciplines him. And then he repents. And God uses him to proclaim his name amongst the nations. And, and this is what God has done in the history of Israel. His, his covenant remains. His gospel has gone forth. And it's going forth to the nations. Even though Israel was disobedient and rebellious, he still he disciplined them and he still used them. And that's what he did with Jonah. And that is in a sense what he does with us when we're disobedient. He'll, he'll discipline us. He'll chastise us. But then he will restore us. And he will use us because he is faithful. So, God offers three privileges to those who are obedient to him. First, his presence, that he would dwell amongst us. His protection. And then third, his peace. So we have the presence of God, the protection of God, and then the peace of God. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The peace of God that creates a clear conscience as we follow him. There's um, one preacher has said, and many have repeated him, that there is no softer pillow than a clear conscience. That we can sleep at night when we know we have obeyed God, no matter how hard it is. But as... Adam and Eve fled as Cain fled from the presence of God. Our consciences are troubled when we disobey and we try to flee, but there's no refuge. There's no place to hide. We can't go far enough. And God will prick our conscience. Puritan J.C. Philpot, he had, he, in his sermon on this verse, he writes this. He writes this concerning Jonah. He says, He cannot bear the lashes of conviction which this presence of the Lord produces and yet is unable to walk in the path which conscience points out. He withdraws himself, therefore, from the cause of these stings and reproaches and flees away from this continual source of guilt and condemnation. But in the midst of all this inconsistency, we see marks of life. Hypocrites living in sin can sit under the most heart-searching ministry. 
They can rest satisfied and contented under the most experimental preaching. Their conscience is seared, and therefore the sharpest rebukes and the keenest reproofs cannot touch them. Thus, the very withdrawing of Jonah from the presence of the Lord, instead of being a mark against him, is rather a mark for him, as it showed that his conscience was not seared as with a hot iron, but that it was still tender in God's fear. And after Jonah then had thus withdrawn himself, as much as he could from those things which wounded and lashed him, he goes down to Joppa, and finding a ship going to Tarshish, he pays the fare thereof to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Thus a backslider buries himself in the world as soon as he gets away from everything that stings and pierces his conscience. So there is a sense that as we walk with God, as we obey Him, we have this peace of a clear conscience. But as we sin as we flee from his presence, as we disobey him, our conscience pricks us. And, and if we continue in that path, there's a danger of searing our own conscience. But that danger isn't for the people of God who have his spirit within us. The fact that our conscience would be troubled in sin is... It's a grace of God. It's part of his discipline that would prick our conscience, that would bring us back. And, and, and J.C. Philpot writes about this in Jonah, that his, his conscience was pricked. And, and even so, as the mariners confront him, he says, throw me into the sea. And that's when the repentance begins. That's when the pricking gets more and more. And that's where, it, where he starts to turn back to God. And eventually he would experience a little bit more of God's presence and his peace and his protection as he begins to obey him again. But yet, it wouldn't be perfect. He would still pout. But God offers us this peace this peace that surpasses all understanding if we obey him, and this peace that would even extend to others. And, and there's, there's one key word upon which the main point of this whole verse rests, which is that small adversative, but. But Jonah. God calls him, and then there's a but. And, and there's two ways in which you can see this adversative throughout the Bible. As, as one preacher has said, praise God for the buts in the Bible. But in sinfulness, we see that people turn from God. God calls them to do X, Y, or Z and, and says, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to do A, B, or C. But Jonah. But God. But God sends a fish. God disciplines Jonah. God calls Jonah to repent. God restores Jonah. God uses Jonah to go extend his peace to the nation, to go and actually obey and save the Ninevites. And God does the same with us. In Ephesians chapter 2, 
and you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were created by God to glorify Him, to worship Him, to, um, to show His image, to honor Him in everything we think, say, and do, but um, we said, no, we're, we're going to do it our way. We're, we're going to live according to how we want to live. We're going to worship things contrary to God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The interesting thing about the book of Jonah is that there's extremes. He's called to rise up and go to Nineveh, but he goes down. He, he, he's, he's called to o, o, obey God, but he flees. Uh, and God disciplines him. We see that, that almost everything in the book of Jonah obeys God but Jonah. But God still uses Jonah. God restores Jonah. God saves the Ninevites who were Israel's enemy. And, and, and just as Jonah disobeyed, Israel disobeyed. And, and and we can see ourselves in Jonah's disobedience and Israel's disobedience, but God. But God still uses us. But God still shows His grace. But God uh, still extends peace to us. And here's the interesting thing, is that, that though Jonah, in disobeying God, forsook the presence of God and the protection of God and the peace of God, but God disciplined, restored, and used Jonah to extend his peace of salvation to the Ninevites. His protection from his wrath to the Ninevites, which they deserved. His presence by the grace, by his grace to the Ninevites. And that generation who repented from their sins at the preaching of Jonah experienced the grace of God exhibited in his presence, his protection, and his peace. As Isaiah said to the Israelites, the people in Judah that day, he said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God always does things differently than we would expect. And he shows his grace and his mercy towards sinners, and he uses sinners to extend his grace and mercy towards other sinners. And if we would but repent and return to him, his presence would be with us, his protection would be upon us, uh, his peace would be within us.
and it would extend to others. And, and that was Jonah's calling, that was Israel's calling, and that is our calling. That we are to be God's people, and as we are his people and we obey him, he dwells within us and amongst us, and, and his peace goes through us, and we are his ambassadors to this world to proclaim his greatness and his glory amongst the peoples that he would be exalted, that his name would be lifted high, and that we would be known as his people. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson, the many lessons that you have taught us and continue to teach us through Jonah and through your people and through um, the history of your people throughout the whole Old Testament and the history of the church. Lord, help us to live lives worthy of your name and of your calling, to be an example, to be that light shining in a dark and decaying world, to be that city set upon a hill, to be those people who are called out, who are different, who not only go to others and, and proclaim your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your character, but live in such a way that others come to us and ask us about our God. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this day and this time. Please be with us throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.